Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This week, we offer part two of a special episode featuring bio member Jack Farrell's interview with veteran biographer and journalist David Marinus. Marinus talks about his fascinating excursions into writing about Vietnam, President Barack Obama, and legendary sports figures. Marinus starts this episode by reading an excerpt from his book about famed Green Bay Packers head coach Vince Lombardi. This is actually before Lombardi got to Green Bay, but it describes, it's chapter 11, The Foreigner. Christmas Eve, 1958. Not yet half past four in the afternoon, but already the drape of a long December night darkened the city. The old empty streets named for early American presidents, the widening yawn of the Fox River, the winter coal pile rising on the West Bank, the northern firmament vaulted above the bay. Most of the downtown had closed at noon, but lights flickered inside the two-story brick storefront office of the Green Bay Packers at the corner of Crooks and Washington. The staff was holding a party, a yuletide football wake for the nicest guy who ever coached, Raymond Scooter McLean. Some of the men had ventured to a bar down the street and returned clinking bottles of gin and bourbon. One of the clerks brought in a phonograph and some big band and poker records and they cleared the furniture in the ticket office and had themselves a fine time dancing on the creaky Soup Street floor. Vern Llewellyn, the business manager, Tom Miller, the publicist, Art Daly, the Press Gazette beat man, Ruth McCloskey and the other secretaries, all were there with Scooter and a few of his pals, brave and lonely souls in a town that had turned against them. Scooter McLean was the coach of a, of a team that as Red Smith once said, was overwhelmed 10 times, underwhelmed once, and whelmed once. They had, they went 110 and 1. <laughs> and that brought Vince Lombardi to Green Bay. <laughs> All right. So tell me, how did you know it was a bottle of gin? How did you know what they danced to? How did you know what the mood was on that street and said, this is what Green Bay must have been like that Christmas well, part of the way I knew about the feel of Green Bay was that I lived there in the winter. So I knew about the coal pile and the sensibility of it getting dark at four o'clock. But luckily, I moved to Green Bay in the uh, fall of 1996 and was able to spend enough time there that Vern Llewellyn, Art Miller, Art Daly, Ruth McCloskey were all still alive. And I interviewed all of them. And and the place was still there. Um, so through going to the place and talking to these people who had memories of that very moment and other people who remembered Scooter McLean too, I was able to paint that scene. So did one person say to you, oh yeah, we had a party. And then you asked the other four people, oh, tell me a little bit more about the party. And it, it came together in pieces like that. The more you know, the more people will tell you. So I can't remember which of those people I interviewed first um, or how we got around to that particular moment. Probably I was asking, I would guess that Art Daly, the Press Gazette beat writer, 
I would ask him about Scooter McLean. Um, and he, you know, told me a lot of stories that are in the book in other places. And then remembered the night that, you know, he was leaving in this party. And then from there, I went to the other people who were there. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of favorite segments in all your books, but that I think is my favorite of all. And I'm really glad that you chose it. Um, so you get Vince Lombardi and Vince Lombardi is not the smiling, happy-go-lucky, tough get in there guy that uh, NFL films would have us believe in. You found he was a uh, much more complex character. At what point in the process did that light bulb go off and uh, how does that change how you approach the subject? Well, I mean, everybody's more complex than their public persona. So you start with that understanding that you're going to find a lot of complexity. Um, With Lombardi, it was everywhere. You know, because he had been mythologized by the right wing as sort of the symbol of of the old way, the right way, uh, when pride still mattered way, by the left as the demon of a win-at-all-cost pathology. And neither of those personas were were him. So I found a much more complex human being. And in this case, I was also helped by the fact that his own son and daughter understood that complexity and didn't try to perpetuate the mythology. So that made it a lot easier for me to get deeper. And some of the the key moments in the book involved the kids or or his wife, Marie. Um, And that was all I was able to get because the son in particular wanted me to write the, the honest story about it. You know, Lombardi was like many leaders, like a lot of politicians, he was better able at creating a sense of family out of strangers, you know, his team than he was out of his real family. Um, that's a characteristic you find in a lot of leaders, you know, in politics and sports. But there are other aspects of Lombardi that were, um, more positive than I expected. He was terrific on issues of race and gender. You know, he was great bringing the first real African-American players to the Green Bay, which is a, you know, white upper Midwest. And he had a brother who was gay and he was way ahead of his time in dealing with that issue. So, you know, there were parts of Lombardi that were very admirable, parts that were difficult. He He was a critic of himself. That's why he went to a mass every morning to try to repent for his temper and his mm-hmm. obsessions. I just found all of that. I find contradictions fascinating and they're in every human being. In Lombardi, they were a little more profound. I always found that the young athletes that I talked to, the, the first hurdle I had to get over was the fact that they they were the blessed child. They had been identified early as this person with this magical talent and there was a lack of self-reflection was was the issue rather than um, erecting a, a wall to keep me away. A lack of self-reflection is pretty evident in most um, athletes. I've tried purposely to pick ones that I didn't think that would be the problem with. Yeah. Lombardi was deeply steeped in uh, sort of the theology of the Jesuits, and he had a lot of philosophy in him, and that, that helped me understand him. Um, Clementi was very self-reflective and intelligent, and Thorpe a little less so. As a matter of fact, to your earlier point about the Blessed Child, Thorpe came from the Sac and Fox Nation in Oklahoma, 
which had originally been in Wisconsin and then Illinois. And he was from the same clan, the Thunder Clan, as Blackhawk. And Thorpe's mother told him at a very early age that he was the reincarnation of Blackhawk. And so he always sort of had that sensibility that he was. Really is a blessed child. Yeah. yeah. Um, before I leave sports, I want to ask you one other question. Your colleague at the Washington Post, Tom Boswell, just retired recently. And one of the things that he wrote in his retirement piece, which really struck me, was he said, uh, the talent hasn't diminished. I still have it. I can still write the piece. It just takes me much longer. And that's the effect of age. Um, do you find that true? I, I do. I find it harder to grasp the, just the perfect words. I find rewriting is more important. Um, how about you? I've been lucky that I've never had writer's block. If I have any difficulty writing, it's because I haven't got the story yet. And I do have a little harder time. You know, I'm 72 years old. I have the same love of everything I do as I always had. I have a little bit less energy to get on an airplane and go somewhere, um, which is what I've always believed. Go there is the key to everything I do. And this last book, I was also harnessed a little bit by um, COVID. You know, there were places that I usually would go that I couldn't go. So yes, to some extent, but also the flip side of that, I think writing is something you, you can do until the day you die. And that's what I love about my job. I don't plan to retire. It might be a little bit different. I might be a little slower, but it's something that I think I can keep doing. Uh, how does uh, Mrs. Moranis feel about that? <laughs> well, it depends on what the book is. <laughs> You know, when I said, how would you like to move to Green Bay for the winter? Uh, you know, that her response was, burr. <laughs> um, when I said, how would you like to go to Rome for the Rome Olympics? Uh, great, you know, or Puerto Rico for Clemente. Uh, or Vietnam. We had a wonderful time in Vietnam for my Vietnam book. Or Kenya and Hawaii to track Obama. So I've been making up it up to her ever since that Green Bay winter. <laughs> Is place more important for you as a writer uh, if you're writing about somebody who's no longer with us and trying to go to Oklahoma or go to Carlisle and get something that you can't get from interviewing the person or his friends anymore? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's important no matter what. And I've always believed deeply in places as a key to understanding the forces that shape someone. You know, in all of my books, I've tried to really immerse myself in the place. So, you know, I spent most of a year in Arkansas, uh, moved to Green Bay, spent a lot of time in Puerto Rico. You know, some books are a little different. I mean, I didn't spend a year in Vietnam, but we went there for three weeks. And as I said, uh, the Thorpe book, I feel, you know, I've just finished the manuscript. I feel as good about it as any book I've written. But I also understand that I had to do it differently. You know, there were places I could not go because I didn't want to get COVID. You know, I was trying to be sensible. (laughs) So it's going to be a little different in that sense. And luckily, I know you've experienced this too. I mean, the internet is essentially a neutral force that can be used for horrible purposes or good ones. And in our profession, it can lead to sloppiness. But the more primary documents that are findable there now, it's it's incredible, you know, um, both from archives and from newspapers.com and 
all these ways that you can get right to the primary document without having to go somewhere for a month. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I've probably relied on that more in this book than any I have before, partly because there's more available. I mean, I believe in using primary documents as much as possible. They're more available, but also COVID pushed me in that direction. So now you, um, when you get to Vietnam, you go to the battlefield and the battlefield is now a plantation, correct? Yeah, so it, it is imagination as well. You have to be able to place yourself like uh, Patton in the, in the movie, you know, Patton, you have to stand at that, at that spot and imagine uh-huh. everything um, as well. Um, how does that work, David? <laughs> Well, you know, it was only part imagination and part uh, really evocative imagery um, because I was with a soldier who had been in the battle. I was with a Viet Cong soldier who had been on the other side of that battle. I was with a farmer who lived right on that property and had fought against the Americans. So as we were walking through the what are now manioc fields toward the, the rubber trees, you know, it wasn't the same as when those soldiers were walking to the battle in 1967, but it evoked something pretty deep. And then when we walked into the rubber plant, the American soldier I was with had a little GPS and he knew exactly where things took place and I had the coordinates. So we were able to get to about the same spot where the commander of the battalion was killed. And I knew from my research that he was killed hiding behind an anthill. We get to that spot and there's a six foot anthill. It's a different one, but it's the same one in a sense. You know? So it was a combination of trying to imagine what it was like then, but also enough of the reality that, that I think it, it worked. Uh-huh. And then you, then you return to a very spare office and uh, have to commit these thoughts to paper. Which do you like better? Do you like the research better or do you like the actual writing? I actually love both. Aside from getting on a plane, which isn't always fun, I love the research. And there are moments that are, you know, they're just gold. When you get a gold mine, whether it's through a, an archival paper or a, a, a moment where you're with somebody or an interview, it's thrilling. I'll never forget when I found uh, Barack Obama's old girlfriend, the one he wrote about in his in his own book, and no, no reporter had found her. And at two o'clock in the morning, she was living across the world. And I spent that entire night talking to her and went back into the bedroom at five o'clock. And my wife turned to me and said, gold mine, right? And I said, yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, so those moments are unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, that's just one way of describing one. But there's also a thrill in writing. I mean, I don't write just to write a drab account of something, but try to bring it to life. And there are times when you have to struggle with that and times when you got a paragraph that just is exactly what you wanted to say. And those times are thrilling too. Yeah. Well, how did you find her? You know, I knew from his memoir that she had a family that lived somewhere in Connecticut, the way he described going up to see the family. And eventually I got from one of his college buddies told me that on one on the envelope of one letter from a, a mutual friend, the name Genevieve, it was on the envelope. <laughs> and so for a year, Julie Tate and I, Julie Tate is this fabulous 
researcher at the Washington Post who just left for the New York Times, uh, we put in every possible combination of Genevieve. And I knew that this woman had later gotten married. So we finally found a wedding announcement in uh, Connecticut that rang a bunch of bells. She was from Australia. She lived in Indonesia, all these things that made it sound like this had to be the one. And so then I went up to Connecticut and checked on the records and found out she'd also been divorced and she'd moved to Australia. Um, from there, was able to eventually find the right person in Australia with a different name and uh, called her up cold and said who I was. And she said, how'd you ever find me? You got two minutes to convince somebody who may or may not want to talk to you at all that it's in their interest. See, you're right. It won't work because she was new agey and Uh, new agey women fall for me because I have a soft voice and I'm not direct, you know? Uh, So it just worked. (laughs) I didn't say you have to talk to me. In other words, I said, I think you're the one and uh, I'd love to understand Brock during that period. It's sort of the, lacuna in his life and you're the one who can explain it to me and so we talked that night and then but here the real wonderful thing was she then started to look up me on the internet and she found an interview where I talked about how important primary sources were to anything that I write and so she wrote me an email and said dear David I saw this interview on the internet of you talking about primary sources by the way I kept a diary. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so that was, that was the next step. Um, so do you use a chronology? Do you um, do outlines? Is there a method that has proven itself over the years? You know, I would never recommend my method to anyone else, but just to have a method. Uh, writers who are starting a book always ask me that. And I say that one hour of organization can save you three hours of writing. It's easier for me to say that to the limit. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm doing the end notes now and I'm driving myself crazy because even with, I have 50 um, of these, right? These are, you know, these are by subject or chronology. Okay, that's a bunch I have, of I, I have these extra files back here that you saw. Those are all by chronology. I have 50 books on you know, Thorpe or Native Americans or something. But the way I end up doing it is after all of this material, I try to compile a master set of notes. In this case, it was a thousand single page type pages. Wow. That's the only thing that's in the computer because then I can find things easier than going through all of this material. But even with those master notes, there's still there's still so many things in these files that I forgot to put in the master notes that I'm still looking for. So I'm basically done with the book. But even today, as I'm writing a chap, I'm doing the end notes for a chapter when Jim Thorpe was the coach and star player for an NFL team called the Oorang Indians, which was an all American Indian team in 1922 and 23. I'm still finding stuff here. It's like, oh, I forgot that, you know? So it's an endless process that goes on until the day I turn in the book. Yeah. I mean, I think that every journalist, if you're good at your profession, you're always worried that you missed something or you made a mistake. I come into it knowing that nobody's perfect, that I, I can't write the perfect book. I can't even write the perfect story, but I can do the best I can. And 
just try to be honest and transparent about it. That's why citations are so important. So here's a new age question. Uh, <laughs> do your subjects visit you in your dreams? They certainly have. Uh, dreams are nightmares. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I do a lot of my writing in my subconscious. So that's a little different. It's not so much a dream as just I'm processing. I'm still thinking, you know, when I think I'm asleep. Sometimes I resolve a problem that way. And my wife would say that I'm at least daydreaming half of my life. So if I'm driving and make a wrong turn, she'll say, what chapter are you on? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think it was Hemingway said that you should always end your day's writing, knowing what the next page is going to be and let the springs refill themselves um, overnight. Is that, uh, that's a maxim for me. Is it for you as well? Absolutely. I sometimes will stop in the middle of a sentence just so I know that, that I can start, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I try to do that when I'm writing as much as possible, really know exactly where the next paragraph's going. And uh, so last question, lots of people get their books optioned. How do you feel when you see your story have to be transformed a little bit for a different medium? I should start by saying that all of my books are in various stages of not being made into movies. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's good because I think a movie would be a little different. But a play is a different, a totally different art form. And uh, whenever I, you know, the, the playwright, um, Eric Simonson, I'd say, you know, this isn't quite the way, it, you know, it happened. And he, he'd sort of take out something from his wallet and say, see this? There would be nothing there. He'd say, this is poetic license. <laughs> and I mean, of course, that's true. And so I was fine with that. As long as they didn't, like, make somebody the wrong race or do something really stupid. Yeah. So, you know, another, my Vietnam book was turned into a, a modern dance. And that was wonderful. Cool. Yes, wow. I mean, which was performed in New York and in Madison and in Vietnam. And, you know, to see the evocation of that story told without words was really something. And so I'm, I'm fine with that. I mean, I think, I think a movie might be the hardest one for me to deal with in the sense that people go to movies and if they're quote unquote biopics, they think they're real. <laughs> so I, I would feel more obliged to make sure they got that one right. Whereas a uh, play and or dance, getting it right, it means something else. It just means getting the right feel. Yeah. David, thanks so much for, uh, uh, for doing it. Uh, I enjoyed this. I did too, Jack. It was really fun. Speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Jack Farrell, that was award-winning journalist David Marinus. His latest book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe, is scheduled to be published by Simon & Schuster in August of this year. This interview was recorded online via Zoom on October 13, 2021. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.